This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is director Justin Doherty and writer Neil Fox. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Lovely to be here. We're here to talk about your film, Wilderness. Does one of you, before we go any further, want to give us a brief synopsis as to what Wilderness is all about, please? So Wilderness is a late 60s jazz romance uh, influenced by John Cassavetes, which follows a couple in the throes of new love who head to the coast for a kind of weekend getaway, which turns out to be the first time their relationship is really sort of brought under the microscope and they find out things about each other that had previously not surfaced. Other people don't matter to me anymore. I feel the same. Also love each other and not be together because it's just a mess. I'm not sure if we're just gonna make a mess. This is perfect, isn't it? It's all I've ever wanted. And how can people see the film? The film's out there on various streaming platforms, including iTunes and Apple, as it is now, and uh, uh, Amazon. Uh, and it's on a few other services, I think, isn't it, Neil? <laughs> yeah, Sky, BT, on Sky. Google. Yeah, so you can rent it from all of those places. Cool. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes. People can do that easy enough, if they so wish, after listening to us talk about it. Um, so what we're going to do, we're going to talk about the making of and, and, and producing of uh, Wilderness. And it's a rare treat for me to be talking to both the writer and the director of a film. Often I get writer-directors on, but but I don't get a chance to ask this question that often. 
how did you two come to be making a film together? And how did this, and, and from the kind of con- conception of the script? Well, Neil and I have worked together on various projects uh, from films to film festivals, theatre projects, comedy shows for the last 20 few years. Um, we, we sort of met with it, you know, uh, when I was both into directing and Neil was into writing, we kind of were the sort of the, the missing piece of the puzzle that we were hoping to find when we were mm. sort of in our late teens. And then it sort of went from there, really. We, we did lots of projects together and, 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 and over the years of running festivals and making short films, the one thing we hadn't really sort of got our teeth into was, was making a feature. And, and as lots of filmmakers know, you kind of, you can procrastinate and sort of put things off because you don't have uh, the right. Uh, script or the right budget or you can't quite get that third act sorted out or, or, or whatever there's all that sort of procrastination and we, we went through all of that and a lot of our projects were you know slightly slightly bigger films I'm not talking sort of blockbusters but they were they were they had you know substantial budget requirements until until it got to the point where you know we weren't working together day to day anymore uh, Neil was teaching at the University of Falmouth um, and I was still based in Luton where, where we'd sort of grown up together. Mm. Uh, but we, we knew that our focus had to be on making a film and we often incorporated teaching into our films, into our short films and into our festivals and we wanted to formalise that in a, in a structure and we thought, well, perhaps the one way is to, you know, is, is to create a simple, you know, <laughs> we say simple, a teaching project where we, you know, we, we have a teaching project uh, project you know feature film scenario which we hadn't really seen before and and neil had done a, a doctorate about about film education and the relevance of film education and we'd seen this gap you know out there in terms of you know what was offered and how um further education created sort of filmmaking opportunities and we we really thought there was a nice marriage there of, of, of us getting to to make something and teach at the same time and those that's really sort of a scenario we always got a lot out of and so we we very much built wilderness to fit that spec we, we tried to keep it simple and in all those sort of classic robert rodriguez indie filmmaking lessons you know use what we had we kept it small small cast uh, and, and you use the environment we had around us to sort of create the story and we we got the idea of just of this simple story about a, about a love affair unraveling and and how to get from a to b with these characters in the story and we thought well if we if we can tell that over 10 scenes with the actors and we can shoot a scene a day then we have a film in 10 days you know in loose theory and so that that gave us although we knew that would change and it would become more complicated than that that gave us the kind of energy and the kind of framework to be like okay that's how that's how the first feature will be possible and we sort of went at it from there and then neil did a lot of the work um at his end you know in terms of securing uh, some financing uh, from the educational uh, perspective, um, and then we sort of yeah just just rolled with it from that. So in conception to delivery, the film the film was sort of conceived, uh, shot, and edited almost within a year, wasn't it, Neil? Yeah, it's pretty close. I think you know we got the green light September 2015, and then yeah we were sort of we had a casting crew screening sort of towards the end of October, I think in 2016. Um, and the film sort of was tinkered with after that, but that was that was that was pretty good in terms of from start to finish. And the film, the script wasn't even written in the September of twenty fifteen yet. So. so, so essentially, this was a this is a project that's been done with the university by you two, as it were. But but in a sense, it also used a lot of student resources. I.e., they were 
they were making the film with you, but that was part of their education as film students. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. I think it's been been talked about and written about a lot, uh, but it's quite, I guess it's quite complicated because it's easy, you know, most people just want to sort of say, oh, it's just a kind of, it's a student project, which it is in part, but it's mm. also part of a desire to to kind of see what, what universities can do in a independent micro-budget space mm. in British filmmaking, really. So it was always conceived as a professional commercial film, but that was, yeah, kind of housed within a university as, 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 as much as it could be that, yeah, deployed students as crew, but was was both a teaching exercise and, you know, a kind of an addition to the British kind of independent film culture. So essentially you you brought in HODs that were pros and the students worked with them. So each student got to be a part of a different part of a production on, on the yeah, film. Yeah, that's how, right. Yeah. How, how did yeah, you, I mean, very... was, did that, did, was that a natural process, i.e. there was obvious people for obvious roles in the film? Oh, you're having to divvy it up and people sort of almost like having to do what they were told and then that was their role on the film. No, most people fell into the right space or the space that they wanted to be in fairly easily. We we only had a few departments, as it were, like most, you know, micro-budget features. You know, you, you, you sort of cross over a bit in terms of what you had. So, you know, we had the, you know, we had directorial, we had you know, writing, producing, sound, uh, mm. camera, and, and editing. And those were really the you know, the, the you know, production, you know, heads, as it were. And a lot of them uh, were, were, were crossing over in terms of the heads of the department. And then underneath that, so we had a couple of students who assisted the editor and they, they were with him sort of every day, you know, you know, bringing in the rushes, you know, on set. We were, we were doing that as we went along and uh, to sort of give them a, a different experience rather than that happening after the, after the filming had taken place. Um, and then, yeah, we, and then we had a few, and then these were all second year students doing this okay. role. Um, and then some first year students were then on board as production assistants and we tried to really vary their experience. So sometimes they'd be in editorial and sometimes they'd be alongside the, the camera or, 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 or to be fair, wherever they showed enthusiasm and, you know, were there when you turned around and needed something, <laughs> that's where they, that's where they were sort of doing it. It wasn't sort of a, a kind of. Uh, an internship of you know going to go and get us some coffees uh sort of thing it was it was very much we're going to get our hands dirty because it's you know it's you know 80 percent of us on this on this set are students and you're going to have to learn and, and do everything so if we've got to move you know if, if we need this job doing if the if, if, you know the boom needs holding by the, the sound department you know that's that's not something we're just going to get professionals to do we're going to teach you to do it and then you'll be booming that entire scene uh, or you'll be you know uh, on the sound recording end of it and so we gave people proper roles, sort mm. of make or break roles, really, because we believe that in trusting people that way, they they step up. And, and what was the relationship between the students' course and and the outcome of the film? Was it was it was it directly linked, or was it just a nice to have kind of thing? It was directly linked in the sense that those students applied to be on the film after you know to be in the department they'd just done a module in, so camera department, documentary for the behind the scenes editing and sound they'd all done that module and then they applied to be on the film that it wasn't um it's not uh it wasn't like credited accredited module um but the idea was that it was an, an enhancement and that the these kinds of films that we make at Falmouth are ways of doing doing what you can't do in a classroom you mm. know kind of 
in sort of pushing out the film education offer that we have so that students have opportunities to do the things that we can only really touch on in terms of theory in terms of what you know actually building a kind of understanding of what film production culture actually is yeah it's difficult really to uh to theorize about the intensity of making a film isn't it where where time is money in in, in in lots of occasions in life there are a few that i've experienced where where once the clock's ticking on a production it really feels like a clock's ticking absolutely yeah and i think you know what was interesting for me sort of teaching film on a on a day-to-day basis was was realizing once i was back making a film because we hadn't justin and i hadn't made a film in about five years at that point because i'd done the doctorate and then moved down to cornwall mm. and all the things that i'd forgotten are just about being on set and being in that kind of final stages of pre-production and that did definitely change sort of how i talked about filmmaking when i'm in a room but yeah the, 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 there's a huge gulf between you know sort of talking about it and doing it and the reason that we chose a lot of first and second years was because we wanted to have that you know that was from the university side we wanted to see that learning from those students you know those students who really engaged with the process on the set and understood it could then come back into the course and be you know kind of advocates and sort of teach their peers how how you know more like how a film film set is run and that was really rewarding because you know that's that kind of fulfilled the brief then of, of, of doing something which which really gets to the heart of of filmmaking and you know from our point of view we've always had that aspect of it and because we've always made films in Luton most of the people that have worked on our sets um have had very little experience you know so we were were very used to working in that way with people who have this real energy to learn and energy to do good but are, are kind of picking up as they go and it's it's kind of harrowing in a in a kind of intense way but it's so rewarding because it, it has a really unique atmosphere on the set and just the the feeling that everyone's kind of achieving this thing which no one thought they could before is is just so wonderful to be part of now you've been you've been open so this is another rare treat for me you've been quite open about what the, what the budget for the film is which is circa 35,000 for this which which is amounts to sort of friends giving their time, private investors, students and gear owned by the pair of you. So if you could sort of, and I think that's important people to, to, to understand because that, that's, a, that's a chunk of change for anyone. It's not a big chunk of change to make a film, but it's still a chunk of change to get your hands on to try and get a film made at any, at any level, never mind with, with, with the students and stuff. So where, where, did the core, where did the core of the money raised for the film get spent? Um, I'd say yeah. So that, that sort of thirty-five is sort of sort of the figure we give out because there's a point where we sort of stop. You, know, you kind of stop counting a little bit after after the film's finished. But there's a there was there was sort of bits of post-production and, and festivals afterwards and, and things mm. like that. But that what that doesn't include really are, are the things which a lot of people might spend money on, like equipment and things like that. I have a lot of the equipment, and so we we didn't really we didn't spend anything on equipment. Uh, mostly what that was spent on was uh, the cast um, and we spent money on um, you know, the logistics. A lot of it was the logistics of transporting people around Cornwall, uh, accommodating them, feeding them, and, and how we would do that over sort of a, a, you know, a shoot of about 12 days. And so um, a core of it was that. And then there was uh, a bit of money in uh, post-production on music and uh, you know making the DCP and all those sorts of those sorts of final things, which 
which rack up. But you know, there's very little sort of spent in terms of on the on the screen, the production design. Although it was sort of it's sort of set in the late '60s, certainly in our heads. Um, a lot of the production design wasn't that expensive. It's just a question of finding the right you know, clothing and, and uh, you know uh, props and bits and pieces. But that was that was done quite you know, thriftily. Um, so yeah, I'd say uh, I think from memory that the biggest budget item was uh, was accommodation and food. Um, and uh, which I think food, that, I mean just to dwell on that for a second, and that's an important thing for people to to appreciate that. If you've invested over time in equipment that enables you to make a film, then the human resource element brings with it a fixed cost that is largely unavoidable, isn't it? So you can, I guess you can scale up and scale down depending on how big a cast and crew you want to be feeding and and putting up for the night. Yeah, I mean, because obviously we were going to, we were bringing everyone away, so it wasn't, I mean... Because the cast in our film, you know, predominantly is, is two main characters who are on screen, you know, in every scene. And so that they had to be with us for the duration plus some time in advance. Uh, and then there were a couple of supporting characters and so, and they, they were up for a, a portion as well. Um, and, and, and we obviously, you know, uh, four of the kind of uh, production staff had to sort of be there as well. So yeah, all that, you know, but that we, we felt that was a, you know, a, a really good sort of trade-off. We believe, you know, we really believe in kind of comfortable sets with good food. Mm. Um, I'm not talking, you know, uh, Michelin-star deliveries of, uh, of food onto our, onto the set, but just kind of, you know, treating people well, especially when you're asking people to work for less than they might normally work, or, you know, and sometimes not at all. Um, you know, just, you know, feeding people and putting them up somewhere nice at the end of a, a day, being cold in the sea, there's somewhere, somewhere warm to go. That's sort of, We've put a lot of value in that, and you know, we we hired a we had a hired a motorhome for a couple of weeks, uh, probably probably for nearly a month actually, to sort of take down there, and that provided you know for the few thousand pounds that that was for the for the logistics that provided us a place to cater, a place to get changed. It provided our editing studio, so we could uh, run you know Macs out of that, have the editing department in there. It had a shower, so we could get warm after we'd been in the water. It had all those sorts of things wrapped up in that, so the money was spent sort of quite sort of carefully, and it was it was spent in chunks. Um, but uh, as you know, a lot of you know, we've done this. You know, it, it, it all adds up, and mostly actually, it adds up on you know, festival submission fees and, and things like that. It's probably a few thousand pounds in submission fees there, and and that and that can be a real eye opener, can it? If you've not planned for it, that suddenly you're faced with a finished film, and and the route to an audience is going to cost you money you didn't put aside. Yeah, there's two, there's sort of two things that we've experienced with that. I mean, from a festival point of view, Neil and I you know, run film festivals for more than a decade and we, we often got letters asking for fee waivers because people said, oh, I've spent all my time on the, I've spent all my money on the film. And, you know, we, we knew all too well that, that sort of story. So we were very careful not, not to do that because we knew, you know, we know what it takes to run a festival and how actually submission fees are, you know, they're not extortionate, um, and some of them are, but you know, reasonable submission fees, you know, go to essential parts of, of festivals existing, and so we wanted that ecosystem to to exist. And uh, and then the other thing was, yeah, just uh, and the music, you know, what happens with the music after the film? Because you know we had we had extra costs in re- getting uh, the music sorted out for its release on uh, to the wider world through distribution, whereas we'd had festival rights for some of the you know tracks before, but we didn't want to spend loads of money on the music in case you know. It was a dead fish, and you know, 
we've got this music license worth thousands that um you know right, it's okay, kind of okay. null and void so we sort of had we knew that we took a bit of a leap of faith and hoping that that wouldn't cost us more in the in the second instance to then upon release get uh, get these get these tracks cleared and, and mostly that worked out but okay neil would you say yeah i think that's that's pretty fair um yeah i think that yeah the festival experience has certainly played into to that aspect i think when we when we when we sat down and you know that when we scheduled it we tried to shoot as much of it in order as possible for for the actors sake but there are obviously kind of realities on that you know so one of our actors got a high paying job so couldn't come down at the time that we we hoped so there was a bit of rescheduling there but when we sat down a lot of it was about you know how can we give everybody actors and the crew the best experience on that day so we kind of we looked at the how you know where we were what we how we could cater because a lot of the, a lot of the shooting was in quite remote remote places in Cornwall so you know there was a kind of there was a logistical question there of how many people can we have on set comfortably that we can look after and you know we got very lucky with the weather but the weather in Cornwall is always very very unpredictable um so you know it, it was a question of you know like trying to make a good experience so that whenever you came on set it felt like you were being looked after to the same degree based on on where we got to be and you know we just did smart things like we found a place which worked as both a, a base for our actors and a location <laughs> you know so you're, you're always trying to think smartly about those things which have to cost money um can they be how far can you stretch it and you know that while we think we learned a lot about shooting a feature that obviously we had no understanding of because we hadn't done it before we were able to bring through a lot of a lot of the ways of thinking that we'd used on festivals and short films to 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 kind of to manage the the production i've i mean it, it purely coincidental but i've over my time sort of covering film and the arts as a journalist I remember uh, back in 2008, I spoke to a teacher at Penketh School in Warrington, who was the first high school to make a feature film called Louis. And uh, more recently, I covered a film called Native, which was um, shot in Dagenham, although it was a sci-fi in a dystopian future where aliens come to Earth, but it was all shot in a a disused um, Dagenham sports centre with uh, (coughs) sort of Kubrick and uh, spaceship interior. But the whole, a bit like yourselves, the whole of the um, people below the heads of department was was all students. In fact, the director of the director of Native was a teacher at a local school, and they basically turned the whole thing into work experience. So it wasn't even like it was a film course; it was just kids, media students interested in looking at film. Um, so, why why do I mean? It, it's not necessarily that there's an answer to this, but what what? From your experience working in education and in film, why why is this still such a sort of novel approach to sort of use the, the practical nature of making a film to help students gain real-time experience that they can put on their CV and, and walk out of college with that's got some heft to it, really, when you can say, I've been on set for a film? That's a big question, which is has kind of occupied me for the last few years and I've talked a lot about this to people at other universities when I've been doing research papers on this yeah um it comes down to money Mm. um it comes down to institutions you know kind of being very careful 
about what they invest in. Um, film is a risky investment. It takes a long time often, even, you know, I think even Wilderness, which was shot very, very quickly, it's still a year. Um, and then before it goes out into the world, you know, and obviously that it's been five years, but so the, how you frame the investment in terms of allowing the staff the time to do it and, you know, investing in the student experience beyond their course is a really it's a really tricky thing to do because there's very little precedent for it there's there's very little precedent for it globally a lot of the conversations that i've had you know kind of taking kind of bits and pieces from different places including like harvard's um sensory ethnographic lab which made the film leviathan the brilliant kind of whaling documentary okay um and sort of, you know, kind of putting together things like that and saying this is how you can sort of do different types of production. But it's it's the one of the things I realized when I arrived at Falmouth was that it is quite a it's quite a special place in terms of the department that I work in and the, the people that I'm surrounded by. It's a small arts university, which you know doesn't have a long history of any kind of research-based practice. So it's kind of it's kind of starting from scratch and a lot of places are bound by long traditions or you know kind of really ingrained ideas about what research is and what practice is and I was very fortunate from doing the doctorate that I developed a language of being able to articulate how this investment was of benefit in so many different ways it was a benefit to the students primarily but it was a a benefit to the university it was a benefit to the sector so it's knowledge exchange it's a benefit to research because I get you know, outputs out of it. Mm. It's a benefit to recruitment and marketing. You know, we have an open day with a hundred students who've come from all over the country and we put up behind the scenes on wilderness we, and we put up behind the scenes on bait and we say, look, while you're here, you can get a credit in department for working on a feature film. Those hundred students want to come instantly, you know, so all of a sudden the 35,000 pound when set against hundred students fees is absolutely nothing, you know? Mm. So there are ways of, there are ways of talking about this that, are kind of you know um where you 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 know you you have to be able to articulate it to the institution that's backing it in a way that they understand and that's an ongoing conversation it changes a lot um but most people don't know how to do that and i you know i didn't know how to do that you know my approach to it was instinctive based on my research based on justin and i's history of making work and knowing that there was a gap and knowing that students were coming out of universities, you know, we had students in Luton who were coming out of the University of Luton or University of Bedfordshire as it then became, but also students returning to Luton after graduating who had no access to this kind of experience. And we knew that was something that universities weren't offering and couldn't offering. And historically that's been the case. So it's, you know, it was great for us because we, we managed to, to make this work um, and set in motion at Falmouth a kind of a real culture of doing it that hopefully we'll we'll be able to tap into again. Um, but it's 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 complicated because ultimately it's about investment and no one really wants to invest in in filmmaking okay. because it always feels like it's you're just giving money to a a single person's artistic vision and you're sending them off to spend your money, which is never really attractive. <laughs> no, I could yeah, I could see there's that. The, the, there's the, the struggling artist who's just going to exploit the school to make their art. And, and another thing, it has to go the, the other way too. So, you know, uh, you have to be able to find filmmakers, uh, you know, and, and other 
you know, supporters and partners and, uh, and investors that see the value in, in doing a, a feature film with, you know, with a large educational aspect to it. Because that's, that's quite a risky thing to put across to anyone. Sort of saying, oh, we're, we're going to make the film and you've got your, you know, other people are going to put in little bits of money. And you sort of say, well, half of it's going to be, we're going to be teaching over here. And suddenly you know, you'll have people, you know, who might be concerned about that. So I'm sure that's a reason why it doesn't happen a lot because you you need your ducks ducks to line up and you just need to have people that are willing to take those sorts of risks and sort of see the the benefit of it and, and i think that's why neil and i got to this stage of wilderness is that we we just saw this as you know you know we had to we had to put our selfish goggles on for a bit and sort of see this is a an av- this is a way that we'll get to make a film and we don't know what that film is going to be like but at worst we'll come out of it and we'll have had a really good educational experience with some students and we'll have, we'll have done something that, you know, means something in that respect only. And mm. if, if we'd have left Cornwall at the end of April like that, then that would have been that. But, you know, thankfully we got a film out of it that we quite like. And, uh, and, and it did, it did do that other, that other thing, but you know, that, that, that is a risk and it's a calculated risk. And we just thought it was sort of, you know, worth the punt in a sense. You talk a lot about Cassavetes in this regard, you know, and, and, and there is a kind of Cassavetti's influence in the film in the sense of trying to do something which is quite emotionally raw and, you know, kind of emotionally messy and mm. having that kind of deep exploration. But, but Cassavetti is, is also a major influence in terms of our, our filmmaking and that, that understanding of trying to get something made by sort of by the means that you have, you know, and as much as he had a very, difficult career much of his success came from his ability to convince people that he was going to you know spend their money in the right way um and that's a lot of what independent filmmaking is an independent art you know you're trying to get little pockets of money from different places and you know trying to do it with honesty but it is at the root you're trying to get people to give you money and you know are we you know making films in Luton and running film festivals in Luton, that has always been a part of how we've had to raise money because there has always been a real, you know, suspicion of giving money to people in Luton to do anything. Um, and, you know, you do spend your time trying to work out, well, what, what can I say that I, you know, that, that will, will, will get us this, but, but also what do I want to do in order to get that money? You know, and I think that we, we got to the point where, you know, our life had reached the point where, a feature was the logical thing and the, the kind of the thing that we wanted to do that we hadn't done, but our lives were radically different to what, what they were a few years previously. So it was about looking at that situation and seeing what, how can we make a film under these circumstances, which felt very Cassavetes like, um, and, you know, the, the legacy of wilderness for me at work has been, you know, it's kind of propelled my career because I've been able to, yeah, sort of showcase, its success on so many different levels, but also, you know, sort of publish papers and and sort of you know and sort of do conferences that have, that have come out of it. So, it's it's done everything we said it was going to do at the start. Um, so I don't feel bad about the selfishness, you know. And I think that's, you know, I think that and that 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 faith that they've had has been repaid tenfold, um, which is why we're still making films at the university and kind of more and more exciting kind of developments in that in, in that regard. One of our our other heroes, Ed Wood, also did this. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. 
That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. He did, obviously. <laughs> to, 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 to varied very success compared to Casabetti's. But uh, <laughs> but I was just going to say one of the things about that na- that notion of the of the relationship between the filmmakers and and the money that and all the and all the resources that you get to make it is that a lot of the times the, the risk is apparent to anyone coming in to be involved in a film. The very nature of 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 a film getting made means there's a lot of risk involved. But from a from a very stark relationship between the investor and the person, say directing the film, is is that. They just want to trust that you're not going to waste the money because there's obviously a, there's always a, you can make the best film ever in critical terms, but it can still lose money. But if you just throw an iPhone round a bucket for ten hours, you've not made a film, have you? So it's like <laughs> it's it's that kind of that kind of trust as well in terms of the relationship between the filmmaker and whoever's 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 patronising it with money or giving it money or whatever however however it comes around. And the yeah. more success comes, the greater that is. I mean. A, a kind of easy example would be only because I've just rewatched it. Is look at Reservoir Dogs. It's made for tuppence, and then look at you know um, the later films. His career, you can see there's a lot more money been trusted in him. But the risk of making money from a film is still still remains. It just there's more there's less risk attached to the person making it. Yeah, and I think that you know it's a it's about understanding what the investor wants for their investment. It's not always their money back. You know, like at the university, for us, you know, it wasn't about making money. They needed to know that their investment was being returned in a, in, in other ways. You know, and I think that's often the case. You know, you, you know, we don't have many tax breaks, obviously, in this country anymore. You know, that was a good source of of being able to to kind of to get money from people. But you know, often, and we've done that with grants as well. You know, like what what's the return of investment for the money that you're getting? And I don't think filmmakers independent filmmakers are necessarily think about that enough you know there's too much of an idea of i just want the money because i'm a creative genius and that's not necessarily explicit but it certainly drives i think how people approach getting money um and i think that you know we've always scrabbled around and and and, and i i feel that that served us well as filmmakers because we're just much more aware of that conversation um and it's a really important conversation because there's so few ways to get money to make films and feature films particularly that you have to be you have to be smart about it if we can just talk about two two of the two of the main characters in it and we'll start with casting james barnes as a male black lead playing opposite a white lover in a period drama set in the uk but in your film there is no real over race related drama i mean there's arguably a little bit out on the beach early on but it's not something that drives the film in any way that's a really interesting decision to take both in terms of the storytelling and, and just just creatively so what what was behind that in terms of wilderness 
I guess it's sort of it's kind of colorblind casting in a way in that we didn't we didn't you know Neil didn't write it with any particular uh, you know uh, it wasn't it wasn't written like that was it Neil it wasn't written as a uh, um, a mix you know mixed race couple or so on the pe- on the page it didn't specify that James's character was a black man. No, no, okay. no. Okay. And in fact, the scene on the beach where there, with the scene on the beach where actually there is, you know, it can be, you know, it obviously reads on the scene where a landowner comes and he's, he's clearly troubled by James's appearance uh, is actually something that happened to Neil, uh, <laughs> uh, probably more from a class perspective than anything else. So it's actually that scene existed for James's cast too. So we never, it, that wasn't really a story we were telling uh, in a sense obviously the fact we the fact it's sort of we say it's a late 60s film it, it, it raises the question you know more in, in a sense of like what about about you know british history and race relations it you know, mm. raises that but for us the film isn't sort of like we're not rubber stamping it in 1968 or 1969 it's just an it's a feeling and an aesthetic and a kind of uh, a creative kind of release to have that film sort of set and look like that we're not really drilling down into the kind of what's and why's of anything like that. It's really just about you know, two people. And those people could be two men, two women. Uh, and in this instance, they happen to be a black man and a white woman. And so I think we weren't really interested in, in that element and more about what the people were bringing about their own uh, experiences in, in kind of, you know, love affairs and those kind of initial projections one makes on another person when you meet and, and all that kind of and, and all that unraveling and i think neil brought all of his experience with that to the to the script and i brought my experience into the directing and then james and cat very openly brought themselves as well and so it was always very much about that as opposed to what, what they look like and, and and right or wrong i think that's the sort of perspective we we went down neil, neil is that right i mean it's sort of it's a while ago now. <laughs> yeah, no, I think yeah, I think it's 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 absolutely right. You know that the 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 reality of the process is obviously not on the screen. Um, I think when we when we cast James, we knew that scene was going to have a different context, kind of undeniable. We'd had a similar we'd had a similar experience on our short film. It's natural to be afraid, which was the last film we made, where. Mm we'd had that in mind as a, as a, um, as an Eastern European female lead um, because of, sort of what was going on in Luton at, at that time in terms of uh, immigration and, and certainly kind of, you know, the reporting of, of Luton. Uh, we're very passionate about, you know, Luton being portrayed fairly yeah. and, and realistically as opposed to the media portrayal. And we wanted to sort of, you know, tell a story, but then we cast a, um, uh, an Israeli actress um, and who didn't speak, you know, in, in the film, she didn't speak any English. So there was a kind of, a, that just automatically changed the context of the story, given her background and the fact that she was using, you know, Hebrew um, to, to speak. And so we were kind of aware that when those casting decisions have an impact, um, I think they're more for the conversation afterwards, aren't they? I think we're interested in the conversation they bring, not, not, yeah, I'm really interested how it reads because I think that when you know there's a t- I think there's a tendency because the film's released in 2021 but was obviously shot in 2016 to you know 
to want to defend it in the moment. But I really just want to hear what people think about it, because I think at the time when when we talked to James about the role, he was so excited that he was up for a feature lead and it was a film role that wasn't um, a, a, a gang member or a drug dealer. And he mm. said that explicitly, like this is a this is a role which you're seeing me for, which I would not, I just, I don't get these kinds of roles. And I think that then casting someone and they'd already read the script because all of the people that we looked at on our kind of workshop casting day, they'd all seen the full script. I just felt like going in and saying, well, now we've cast you, let's make it more about race. It just felt really like I didn't have the experience or the desire to do that at the time. Um, I didn't know James. I didn't know anything about him other than the real and, and, and sort of the little bit we'd work with him. So part of me felt like, well, you know, the film is not about that. Let's not just make it more about that because we that's the way we cast it. Because I, my worry was that then, then it becomes me writing, trying to kind of placate what I think is going to be the reception of the film, um, which is not a great place to write from. Um, you know, and I think that talking about it, you know, I wonder what, I wonder what I'd do if I'd known James Moore, but I don't know. <laughs> it was a long time ago. So it's, I think that I'm proud that it's not overtly about that um, and that it gives a really, really great black actor the chance to do something which is not defined by race. Um, although obviously it come, kind of comes up in, a, you know, in, in, and, in and, and And that's, I mean, I've, this is something I've, I've discussed before. It's sort of, I'm 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 as guilty of like my reading of the film as anything else because I'm going I'm used to I'm so used to seeing that become a red flag for the drama that I'm sort of surprised it's not. Whereas, you know, everybody's everybody who is not white, their life experience every day is not always defined by racial conflict. There obviously is racial conflict. There are racists. There's no there's no denying that. But mm lives lives aren't defined just by that alone and obviously he's a jazz musician so a jazz musician in the 60s being black is neither here nor there is it no exactly and i think you know he he is you know there is the sense that the life that he leads is probably as insulated from those day-to-day hmm. traumas as you could have got at the time not to say they weren't there but certainly like you say that you know traveling around cities with with fellow musicians you know um was was a better existence than than for most people, like you say, on that on that day to day basis. And the hope is that that over the course of the film, there are a number of things that that that, that come up in different ways that that put their relationship under the microscope. And that's kind of one of them. Um, and how they deal with that is 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 as telling as as how they deal with anything else. So it's yeah, it's it's been really nice to talk about it because it's something that I really believe in. Um, and also, I mean, I, th- I think what's really nice is that, and I've sort of said this a couple of times, we've been really afforded the opportunity to talk about it in a way which I'm really grateful for, because I think you see online people's responses to things. And we could have been really, we could have been really attacked for this, you know, in terms of, you know, that horrible word discourse. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but it's led to these really interesting conversations. And it certainly made me think about, the writing of that story and the process of working with James in a way that I think has been really valuable. And I think the film coming out in 2021 is certainly, that would not have been the case necessarily 2016. It would have been a very different 
would have been a different um, conversation because film culture was in a different place even five years ago about this issue. But but, um, but equally as progressive is 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 the way that you've written Catherine Davenport's role of Alice, in the sense that she's she's someone with her own with her own view of the world, someone with her own ideas of what's right and what's wrong. She's not while while she's with John, she's not defined by John at the same time. And she doesn't as to, to kind of phrase, she doesn't take any shit. In fact, she she sees what's going wrong with with others and gets herself involved. It's quite the powerful role you've you've given that character of Alice. Thank you. Yeah, that's really nice of you to say. Um I think a lot of it is down to Kat and James, I think. Mm. You know, part of part of the writing process was was trying to leave the lines as open as possible so the actors could decide on tone and the actors could decide on, you know, and I know that's certainly what Justin worked with with them on was, you know, was building that mood where they were going through that relationship. I was as interested in seeing their interpretation of, you know, what could be ambiguous based on their own experience and Kat's performance. Yeah, just kind of was just, it just, Kind of got to a place which I was really excited by watching it, even in the in the audition. Yeah, because there's a, there's a lot of work for the actors to do because obviously the drama is very much sort of room based. It's not action based at all. So you, you're relying very much on on how much they can convince us this is really going on. Yeah, and we were very fortunate. I mean, like we we mostly shot it in sequence, so we were able to have a kind of nice progressive you know journey with that and and sort of. And sort of see how that went, sort of day to day, as we were feeling. And yeah, and, and but also I think, like like Neil said, he was sort of he left a lot of space in between. I mean, the, the screenplay is about sixty two pages, um, so there's there's a lot of breathing space there where we could kind of create scenes or just leave leave spaces for them to just you know react to each other and and have that. And they and I think they really enjoyed having that freedom and you know I enjoyed having that that fun with them where we where we could do that and um, we were able to sort of change of the way scenes, you know, how scenes appeared, you know, so they weren't, you know, like you say, a lot of it's essentially in a room, you know, it's like a play, but we, we, we tried to put it into different scenarios where that, that sort of was, was masked in a way by, by what they were doing. So, um, so I think, yeah, that, but, but what I think was always evident about the film, and this is always within James and, and Kat's, reactions to it when they when they re-watch it and you know they re-watched both re-watched it again recently and, and sort of messaged me is that it the film is the sum of the the sum of its parts you know it's it's it, because we made it pretty much in sequence and because it, it's very much who we were in that that month mm. and and so when they they come back to it they kind of you know if, if we'd have made that film three months later it might be it could read very different because it was all just very much going on adrenaline and energy like that. It was, you know, we didn't re- rehearse and re-rehearse scenes to, so we could get, so we could get them to a fine point. We, we were very much reacting to the situations. Often we wouldn't get, have our location or have access to our location. So it was about, we created the scene in the moment, in the location, or we felt that, I mean, towards the end of the film, there's a scene where they, they, they play cards again. And, um, and that scene ended up just being a you know a, a static shot because of the way it felt that day, and so a lot of it was was improvised in that way, uh, in the way that we wanted to bring the the idea of jazz improvisation into the film, and and a lot, a lot of the scenes 
uh, or scenarios or framing of the, those scenes, they're repeated throughout the film. And so Neil gives me lots of, uh, he, he writes in lots of moments where like, it's, almost like this, it's almost like the same but different, you know? We're, we're seeing above them and they're, they're talking about how perfect it is. And then we're seeing above them and they're talking about how broken it is and how we can repeat that visually and, and do a little twist on it. Uh, like, a, like you would take a jazz solo and slightly, um, you know, uh, change the refrain. Or, you know. can, you think of exam- so, um, can you think of examples where James and Catherine did something or brought something to the character that you couldn't have imagined until they did it? That sort of, you know, because obviously there's there's one thing to read the character on the page and then obviously there's another to begin to see it come to life. Well, I think this, there's a scene after, um, the scene we used for the audition was, yeah. was a scene where they, they've, been to a, they've been to a party and there's been, it's where the bubble's really starting to burst and they've, you know, alcohol has been consumed and they, they, they're starting to sort of see things in each other and certainly say things to each other, which they might not mean or might most certainly mean and 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 they go back to there where they're staying afterwards and the emphasis you know the, the sort of you know the emphasis on them is to is to have sex because they're you know, they're lovers they're away for the weekend that's what they're doing this that but they can't help but continue this conversation and and you know this was written as a conversation and we put that into the framework of of a, a kind of a love scene and a fight scene a sort of combined and we didn't that was where we really just talked about that scene a lot with James and Kat, but we didn't really get to see what it was going to be until we, until we did it. So it was okay. kind of all this sort of, all this build up. And then, you know, James, Kat and I went into the bedroom <laughs> and, uh, and we sort of, and we just sort of let rip those, all of that stuff that was, that had been coming up. So I think that that's where there's some, some stuff I just love in the film because, you know, it, it wasn't directed, you know, like that. I can't take credit for those bits. They're, that's them just kind of, I'm just following what they're doing. Um, uh, and that was, it was just nice because it gave them, it gave them a lot to, to go on because they, they weren't just having an argument. They were having an argument and trying to make love. And it kind of gave them a lot to kind of work on. And so it's sort of up and it's down within the scene. And I think that's, I think they really sort of showed some, some great moments within that. Um, yeah, that's the one that definitely springs to mind. Okay. Uh, and can you tell me the role and influence of owning a jazz club on the film? Well, it was, it was a handy convenience, really, wasn't it, Neil? <laughs> yeah, practical. <laughs> so only practical. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, as when I, you know, I, I remained in Luton, um, uh, you know, after Neil, I sort of, uh, when Neil went to Cornwall, and I, I started a jazz club in a building here and, and it, jazz wasn't sort of part of the film until we were talking more about Cassavetes and we were, you know, Neil and I love soundtrack. And so we're always, we're always led by soundtrack. I mean, it's just, it's just part of it. It's part of the films we love so much. And so that was going to be important to us. And we, and then we just sort of started talking about it from a, from a creative point of view in terms of what that could lend to the film uh, and how it would be a nice nod to, to the Cassavetes you know, tribute we wanted to do. And, and also just, you know, we, we have access, you know, we, from a practical point of view, I have access to a lot of, you know, great jazz musicians, you know, the best British jazz musicians play at this club. And so I had, had a nice, you know, soundtrack on tap and people were really generous with their, with what they gave to the film. And uh, we re-recorded some uh, pieces for the film, specifically, you know, the opening and closing credits, which is an Ornette Coleman track that Neil used while he was writing the film. Okay. And we had a, a great band re-record that. Again, that was a practical decision around the jazz club. We could shoot that opening scene in the club um, so we could sort of see jazz. Because it wasn't. it's a jazz movie with not a lot of jazz in it. 
in the film you don't see people playing jazz you know in, in, the, in the movie it's not it's not that kind of jazz movie yeah um uh but people who like jazz movies seem to know what we mean when we say you know it's a jazz movie <laughs> uh, and uh <laughs> But, you know, we were able to do that within the, within the film. And we knew that Ornette Coleman, coming back to budget again, we knew that Ornette Coleman track would probably cost us a lot of money if we were going to use the Coleman recording of it. And so, um, and these great musicians, and we, we filmed them. So they're in the opening credit sequence, their fingers, and mouths, just sort of playing the in- instruments up close. And, um, and then we, we, we own the master of that now. So we just pay the publishing. And the publishers were really great with us throughout. You know, gave us really good price for having the you know the festival rights and then the you know the the further rights for release. And so that that became a much you know much cheaper way in a in a way than you know um, you know paying for that uh, track outright. So the jazz thing was yeah it became it became all sorts of influence really and um, and uh, just was uh, it was it was sort of nice timing and sort of serendipitous that it. It worked so well with the film because we, yeah, we weren't starting out to make a uh, film with the jazz soundtrack per se. I think it just came about in Neil's kitchen one evening. <laughs> so yeah, what? and it just it just helped the writing of it, you know, like because it was quite early on, and I'd started writing, so I had a kind of lot of it sketched out, but it didn't really have that mood that I always like to have when I'm writing. So the jazz thing helped, and then that period of of jazz and that period of yeah, kind of cinema and culture is something we're really interested in. So that's off almost where the the period is located, is in, in the stuff I was listening to to write it, which was Ornette Coleman, Alice Coltrane, John Coltrane, and things like that. So yeah, that and then and, and then yeah, just the the feeling of listening to that and can we can we get anywhere near that through the making of the film is what is what drove it. And you know, one of the reviews that I was most pleased with was was the, the jazz journal. Um because they got it as a jazz film, you know, they really understood how it was a jazz film, even though it's not, you know, loads of close-ups of, of James playing his sax and then laying with it mournfully. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a <laughs> there's a there's a real there's a real kind of yeah built-inness to it, which is which is pleasing, I think. In the writing of it, Neil, what for you were the with the with the biggest storytelling challenges once you started to sort of begin to write it out as a screenplay to uh, to develop. Because obviously you've got the two central characters and it's their, it's their attraction, their repulsion, their attraction, their repulsion that we're, we're sort of watching. Um, what, what for you was the sort of biggest storytelling challenge? Uh, resolution, really. Um, the, you know, the, the, the need for stories to, and particularly screenplays, to have resolution, not just at the end, but kind of built in, you know, mm. these kind of mini structures where you're constantly resolving things. And I just didn't want anything to be resolved. Um, so kind of trying to stay conscious of writing and then getting to a point where one of them would say something or do something that would resolve even that fight, you know, and try to make it, you know, just just push just push into the next scene. Um, which is where a lot of the space that Justin sort of exploited with the actors came from. You know that there's, it's it's not a, it's not an easy kind of tied together script, and that was on purpose. You know, so that that was conscious to be like, okay, well, I've and I think because of it, a lot of it was personal mm. in the writing. I didn't want to put too much of me in there, and I think a lot of me that could be in there would be in that kind of, oh, let's just make this tidy and and kind of <laughs> make it easy for 
everyone to understand how everyone's feeling and that they're they're happy and they're going to be happy you know so it was that was a challenge because i think the tendency can be to make it tidy um and i just didn't want it to be tidy i wanted it to be messy throughout um so that people would come out of it confused about how they felt about it and that's been great because everyone's kind of confused about how they feel about each character at the end you know um and that kind of as again i think was was great because i think that cat really saw an opportunity to to do something fearless in terms of someone who was just interested in her own perspective a lot of the time um which you don't really which you rarely see and james i think was doesn't get enough credit for 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 not doing the obvious thing of being really strong and defiant but for being quite vulnerable um and and unsure and a little bit pathetic at times um you know i think that there's there's they've they they played around in the mess which was which was very and i think i think that that element of it really resonates for the for the idea of the period it's in because i could imagine that a young man with expectations of what a woman should and shouldn't be might well be thrilled and terrified at the same time by who who alice is Exactly. Yeah, she she doesn't really let him get away with any of his kind of normal artistic shit, really. Is she? Yeah. And that's sort of what we. That was, if any that if there was a sort of any note we gave her, that was that was sort of it, really. You know, he's he's never really met anyone like her before, and you, and she is kind of and that there is an enigmatic element to her, and that we don't really know anything about her, where she's come from, you know, what you know, you know, you know why she's got this sort of strength, and why she just said, you know, she says the things she says, uh, you know, and sort of sticks to the spoke in the you know sticks the stick in the in the spokes you know um and i think I, you know that's what i sort of I, I love about what you know i love about her really and and hate about her and and you know have and, and even cat cat has this like love hate relationship with her when she comes back to to, to watch it and, and i think um, even back to the music that's what makes all net the, the all net coleman track which we you know kind of knew we had to kind of find a way to use in, in the film and get you know have the permission is that it's it it really represents this these two people like the, the the Coleman track is 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 messy and it's it's uncomfortable to watch and that's how the film starts the film starts with this old style credit sequence for 3 minutes where you watch the credits and you hear this duel between you know saxophone and a trumpet and they they're not they're playing together but they're not playing in unison and you know they're there they're sharing the stage but there's a fight you know, there's a fight with these two instruments and it's sort of, it's a really nice precursor that, you know, to, to what's going to come. I think often men say they like, men say they like, you know, strong, progressive, independent women, you know. Um, but often I think they, they can say that just to sound progressive. And I think the reality of being a man is often, you know, and then having that reality in front of you is a real challenge to you. And I think James plays that really well, that, that you know that moment of realizing actually this is you know this is someone who is all those things which i might say i treasure and want in a woman and here it is but the reality is that it's it's not a clean thing it's you know there is a real person in front of you um and while they are those things there are also other things because we are we are multitudes and we are, yeah yeah justin what what were the circumstances that meant that you also had to dlp your own film well well, um, we, so we were, you know, we, we were prepping our, obviously our small 
crew of heads of departments uh, in the few days, you know, running up to the to the shoot. And uh, I was going to uh, use a great uh, guy I'd known from Memphis. Uh, where I do some jurying at the Indie Memphis Festival, which is a great festival. Anyone submitting anywhere in the US, uh, and he he'd just done some great stuff. And I, I knew I wanted, I just wanted someone to collaborate with from that perspective. I, I'd I'd mostly shot my films before, uh, um, apart from the last short, and but I just. I knew that I just, I really wanted that experience of, of, of having that with a, with a DP. Uh, and it wasn't a, you know, wasn't an experience I've really had of working with someone in and out on that. And, and also knowing from a, from a technical standpoint, I just wanted someone else on set for the, for the teaching experience, you know, of, of that to sort of, to be able to take the lead on certain things and, you know, you know so that the teaching could be overseen too. And, and so, and, but then, um, Ryan arrived from, uh, the U S to Heathrow and they detained him and deported him within 24 hours so they kept him i gave him a cheese sandwich and a Blimey. Uh, glass of water and they deemed that he was there you know to, to work um and he wasn't really he was doing you know he was doing this as a as a, as a favor really it's like a, a holiday i suppose you know whichever line you, you draw as to what is work and what isn't they uh, uh, you know they they deemed it that he was there to work and um they they sent him back so we had a quick decision to make, and uh, the the only realistic decision was was me doing it. But we, we found another guy locally who had a lot of experience with the cameras I was using, doing you know setting up lights and just sort of uh, doing that. And he you know, he he knew the university well, and so he was able to sort of engage with the students really well. So we had a bit of a, a, a nice buffer uh, in another guy called Ryan. So we we replaced one Ryan for another. But yeah, I ended up uh, you know DPing, which. Which sort of changed the film in lots of ways. I mean, there's another version of Wilderness out there um, uh, that we'll, you know, we'll never see and would have been very different. But I think what we took away from this was was it was quite it lent itself quite well to certain scenarios, like the scene I was talking about earlier, where they after the party, where they you know where they're, they're sort of fighting and and you know trying to have sex. They're, you know that that is just me and them. You know, there's no there's no one else and, and so there's no loss of translations in terms of what I wanted to capture and, and then so I think we you know we gained a lot from that and we probably lost a lot too but what we lost we'll never really know well look guys it's been a pleasure talking to you let's remind people then how can people see wilderness people see wilderness on various streaming platforms including Amazon and iTunes and Sky and Google and BT. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thanks for having us so much, Stuart. Yeah, real pleasure. Really nice conversation. Thank you. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.